Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, I talk with Stephen Goff, the soccer reporter for the Washington Post, and our own Howard Stutz about Major League Soccer possibly considering Las Vegas for an expansion team. After that, reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez has a story for us about Melissa Malero Moose, an indigenous artist who recently joined the Nevada Arts Council and aims to help other indigenous artists get their work recognized in museums and publications. She talks about her own personal journey with art and more. At the end of the show, we have a discussion on a controversial topic featuring contributors to our opinion page. Managing editor Elizabeth Thompson moderates a discussion on vaccine mandates with attorney Jason Guinasso and marketing researcher Rex Briggs. Stephen Goff is a Washington Post reporter who has been covering soccer since Major League Soccer started in 1996, and he was recently in Las Vegas covering the CONCACAF Gold Cup game between U.S. and Mexico, which U.S. won one to nothing. Stephen, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. And so we don't normally cover sports events here at the Indy, but this one particularly piqued my interest for several reasons, one of which is the, this tweet that you put out, which is that some people in Major League, Major League Soccer and the MLS were saying that Vegas is a potential area for an expansion team. And I think that's a really interesting thing because we've seen the Raiders come, we've seen the Golden Knights come, there was talk about the A's moving to Vegas. So yeah. obviously there's, there's weird shifts towards sports in Las Vegas. What what are you thinking about and what have you heard from the, the Major League Soccer community about them moving to Las Vegas? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think MLS is very serious about Las Vegas. I think Las Vegas is very serious about MLS. Soccer has gained a foothold in these early days of the new stadium. We saw the sellout crowd recently for the Gold Cup final between the U.S. and Mexico. There are going to be the final of these Leagues Cup tournaments the next two years at the stadium. So the diversity of the city certainly appeals to MLS, the growth of the city, and the fact that they have an indoor arena, which we could say necessary in the summer, stands out as well. There are several cities in the running, but I think from from what I'm hearing, Vegas is at or near the top right now. Still a long way to go. A lot of hurdles. There's financial issues, stadium all kinds of things, but they're they're definitely in the running. Why why is Vegas in the running can, compared to other cities? MLS has expanded quite a bit in the last few years. Next year, Charlotte will come in. St. Louis comes in the year after that, and then they're looking for that thirtieth team. And Vegas certainly has an appeal because of potential investors, because of the stadium situation. The market is ripe for another pro team. MLS has done well in cities that aren't saturated with professional teams. It's not like the the big four leagues are sucking all the oxygen out of the room. So there's certainly room there. And and Vegas would would fit into that, even though they picked up two pro teams in recent years. 60,000 indoor on artificial turf with a field that's a little too narrow is not perfect. But it doesn't rule out Vegas. You know, the demographics of the crowd, 80%, 75% of it rooting for the Mexican team. And I was reading one of your articles that said that this team, this Mexican team, 
it does draw a lot of fans in the U.S. that are rooting for Mexico. If we had a team there, say, obviously it would be a U.S. team. Do you think that it would draw the same sort of interest from the Mexican-American community? Or or, or is it more that that team just has this pull with with, with their community? Yeah, I mean, the national team represents Mexico and it represents Mexicans going through generations. So if you're of Mexican descent, your parents are from Mexico, you grew up in the U.S., there's a pretty good chance you're going to support the Mexican national team. That's your first team. The U.S. is probably your second team. Based on ticket sales, when Mexico plays games in the United States, based on tickets sold in the United States, Mexico is the most popular national soccer team in the United States. It's not the U.S. (laughs) national team. Based on ticket sales, it's the way it is. It's been that way for a long time. So if a professional team came to Las Vegas, soccer is a global sport. So you'd have players on this team from all over the world. Certainly about half the team would be American players, but you would want to sign certainly some players from Mexico and not just any Mexican players. You've got this sophisticated market. They know who's who. You need to go out and get some high quality, well-known players to perform full-time in your market in order to, to to sell tickets. So demographics come into it when you're trying to launch a team in MLS, particularly in a place like Las Vegas, Phoenix, San Diego, anywhere in Texas. I'm curious too, why was Las Vegas chosen for this for this match? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think certainly uh, the spoils go to the highest bidder. I think Vegas put in a hell of an offer that CONCACAF could not refuse. The idea of having a championship game, a celebration, a big event in the entertainment capital of America was certainly appealing and they had the venue to do it. And it brought a lot of people in, not just for the game, but for the hotels and the casinos and the warmth and everything else. So it was a, it became a destination for, for fans around the country to come. It always comes down to money. Let's not fool ourselves. And the deal was right for CONCACAF, for Vegas, for selling a lot of tickets at a at a high, high price. So yeah, made, made sense in many ways. Is there, when an MLS is interested in kind of like moving into a market, does that indicate anything to you about that, that region or that area? Are they choosing them strategically? Is it really just fan base? Is it where they think they can grow the most and make the most money? Obviously is usually a pretty big consideration. It's a lot of things. MLS will say you have to have investors. There is an expansion fee in the hundreds of millions of dollars just to get into the league. So you got to have that. You have to have some sort of stadium plan, whether it's building a new stadium like Cincinnati has done, like Austin has done, or use an existing stadium that works for MLS. Also, you have to prove some level of interest or support in the sport in your community. Las Vegas is doing that by hosting these matches. So that's that's one of the hurdles. And then there's 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 sponsorship and marketing opportunities. There's geographic consideration. Getting into Vegas creates somewhat of a geographic rivalry, perhaps with California teams and with Salt Lake. Also, if a team gets into Phoenix, that's part of it too. But first two considerations, you gotta have the investors who are willing to pour millions into, into a team and you gotta have some sort of stadium plan. MLS is very big on presentation and how things look on television and a way of capturing the fan intensity and spirit that you see in soccer, unlike other sports. All 
right. And so I am here with our gaming reporter, Howard Stutz. Howard, you were on the podcast a couple weeks ago telling us about the, the history of gaming in Nevada. Um, but this time we're talking about something very different. I, I want to start with talking about Major League Soccer and about sports in Vegas in general. We've seen the Golden Knights, which have seen pretty big success in, in Las Vegas. And then also we've now got the Raiders in Las Vegas with their huge stadium. There was talks about the A's maybe moving to Las Vegas, which you reported on. And now there's talks of potentially a Major League Soccer team expanding to Las Vegas. I think this is a really interesting topic because we're looking at kind of a shift in Vegas's history. We don't have any major sports teams or we didn't a couple of years ago. And all of a sudden there's a lot of interest in Vegas and sports. What's kind of going on there? Why are we seeing this interest in sports teams coming to Vegas now? Well, I think because of the success of the Golden Knights, this is an expansion team in the NHL that Bill Foley paid 500 million MGM built the arena and the Golden Knights came in and it's a, an expansion team in the NHL that went to the Stanley cup final in their first season, which nobody predicted. I mean, nobody expected that. And huge crowds, even now, four years, four, four years later, going on with the fifth season, huge crowds continue to flood into the T-Mobile arena. Of course, it was challenged last year with COVID, but there was still so much interest in the Knights. And, and, and once, once the restrictions were lifted on capacity, massive crowds. The Raiders, it was the, big, the biggest thing to get the NFL to Las Vegas. And that's kind of a no-brainer sport. You play nine games a year, maybe nine regular season games now a year, a couple of exhibition games, maybe then you have playoffs. That was really, you knew there was going to be a huge market for NFL football. And it's proving out. It would have proved out last year if the Raiders played without fans because of COVID. This year, we've already seen an exhibition game that was sold out. So it's a huge draw. It's the most expensive resale ticket in the NFL. A game to a game for the Las Vegas Raiders on NFL ticket exchange, but it's a we knew there was going to be that attention to it. Soccer is not a surprise because this has been discussed by the city by Mayor Goodman years ago, even before the NHL came here. There was talk about trying to get a Major League Soccer franchise into into the city into downtown. Off and on, it's been brought up. I think Vegas was bidding for a franchise, didn't make the cut a few years ago. When the Raiders, Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, was pitching the the committee here to try to get the financing for the stadium, one of the sessions, public sessions, he brought David Beckham in, the soccer star from England. David Beckham, famous for the movie, Bend It Like Beckham. He, When he signed with the LA Galaxy of Major League Soccer, it put Major League Soccer on the map. They got national attention from Major League Soccer for signing David Beckham. So David Beckham came in and lobbied on behalf of the Raiders, on why soccer would be a good fit at what is now Allegiant Stadium. How you do it at, at Allegiant Stadium, a lot of questions on that. If that's the stadium, I don't think there's going to be the appetite to build another stadium. So there's a lot of questions with it. But it seems like everybody that's got a major league franchise that wants to move their expansion franchise is pitching Las Vegas right now. And I think what's interesting, too, about this is since like online gaming has become more broadly accepted in the United States and, and, and easier to do, and also, you know, with sports betting, Vegas is seeing the shift away from this center where it has to be just gaming, right? It needs to focus on things other than gaming to stay relevant. Obviously, we have all the shows in Las Vegas that have been there forever. But I mean, there's this new thing. I, I, I kind of see sports as, as as that entertainment. Have you seen this shift? Have you talked to anyone about this? Are the casinos looking at this as like, well, gaming isn't bringing in as much as it is anymore. So now we have to look at things like like sports. Well, this has been a shift, Joey. As we, you, I think we discussed before, gaming is 35% of the revenues brought in by these strip resorts. 
cost. It's it's not the driver anymore that brings all you know for the money. It's it's everything else. The non-gaming revenues, the hotels, the restaurants, the entertainment. Obviously, major league sports is a way of filling the rooms. When you're you're gonna that's what's gonna be fascinating to see with the Raiders this year, the audience attendance. What what does the crowd look like? Is it predominantly Raider fans? Are you gonna have fans from the other NFL teams? That's what one of the big things we've seen with the Golden Knights is I, I, I went to a game the first season on New Year's Eve day and half the audience was in blue were the Maple Leafs fans. That has been the phenomena that people from out of town, they plan their visit to Las Vegas around a Golden Knights game. I'm curious if we're going to see that with the Raiders and maybe that's what you see with the fans of, of soccer, major league soccer teams. Will they plan their visits for their home team? Their favorite team is coming to Las Vegas and so they're going to come to Vegas for the, and, and stay a few nights and do that. And so that's, that's really where the way the gaming industry looks at professional sports. I'm going to tell you one thing I think about the Golden Knights, Joey. The Golden Knights have been in the playoffs every year since they've been in existence. They're going to hit a downturn. I mean, that is just, that is just the ebb and flow of the way sports works. And will the fan base still be there when the Knights have a, have a horrible season? <laughs> they, they don't make that, they're not going to make the playoffs. That's going to be the question we're going to have to watch over time. And it hasn't been answered yet. Well, Howard, thank you so much for, for chatting with me today and, uh, and for giving me all this information. Anytime, Joey. Happy to be on the podcast as always. Art is a deeply personal process and experience for Great Basin artist Melissa Malero Moose, who was recently appointed to the Nevada Arts Council. Her mission, both as an artist and as an Arts Council board member, is to create space for Indigenous artists and their work in places it has historically been left out. Malero Moose is Northern Paiute and an enrolled member of the Fallon Paiute Shoshone tribe. She spoke about her goals and more in a recent interview with reporter Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez. Valero Moose describes her art as personal petroglyphs, representing her experiences as a Northern Paiute woman from the Great Basin. Her abstract paintings include physical materials gathered from her ancestral homelands, such as willows and pine nuts. She said there is a natural artistry present in indigenous culture that she felt connected to as a young person. Most of my family is artisans in one way or another, mm-hmm. and a lot of Native people, I want to say. I don't want to say like, all Indigenous people are artists, but they are creative, making lots of regalia and different things like that, beadwork and basketry. And my grandma, who I never met, mm-hmm. uh, she died before I was born. She was an artist, and so there was like portraits of her, so maybe I was sort of idolizing her or whatever. Uh-huh. But got into it in high school and then sort of my mom shipped me off to art school against my will and of course the rest is history. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you mentioned art coming as a way through your identity and your culture, your community. How do all those things influence your art? I remember probably one of my first painting 101 classes at TMCC. I was like, I wanted unique content. You know, mm-hmm. people were doing their bowls of fruit and mm-hmm. their pets and I was like, what what do I love? What do what do I want to paint? You know, you spend so many hours on it mm-hmm. on a piece, it has to really mean something. And so sat down and focused on that and immediately just started doing I think designs, like beadwork designs and mm-hmm. um, it always kind of came out abstract. I was never a very good realist 
I tried for a little while and like did portraits and stuff, but eventually it turned very uh, abstract and um, and and developed from there with mixed media. So talk to me about what themes you're drawn to. When I really started to make my work and exhibit my work, the themes was identity. At one point when I was in school, whether I was in Portland or Santa Fe, I was the only one of my kind. I was only the only Paiute in the area, you know. So mm-hmm. it was easy to to say, "This is this is me. This is uh, who I am. This is where I come from." These are uh, representations of that, whether it be my identity or um, the Great Basin landscape and culture mm-hmm. and design. And so I was always thinking about that and always focused on making that work unique. I didn't want to be like everybody else. I I have to focus on the one thing that I had going for me, and that's being the only me in the world. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Could you tell me about that again? You know, how the painting that we photographed you with had themes of working through your identity. The, The hiding piece, that piece is incorporating like little bits and pieces and colors and sand and willow and paper and and I put paper over the willow and that's why it's called the hiding when I was growing up not being proud of who I was I was always scared to let people know who I was and as I grew up it became the only thing that kept me going was you know I I have to accept who I am and this is who I am and as a teenager most teenagers aren't proud of who they are until they grow up, and then you find your identity, and that's what it's all about. Malero Musa's mission as an artist has evolved in the last two decades. At first, she said she was just trying to survive and struggled to commit to her art full-time as a recent graduate. So she went back to school for her master's and worked in social services for tribes in New Mexico and Nevada for more than 10 years before she was able to focus on her art full-time. In 2014, Malero Moose created the Great Basin Native Artists Collective, which tracks indigenous artists in the region and their artwork with the purpose to make it a simpler process for museums and curators to find the work and showcase it in their museums and galleries. With my background, I knew how to do that. It was easier to dream up let's start a group, let's do our own shows, let's get publications, let's write our own articles and Mm -hmm. tell our story. And that's everything, including our art, but also our our culture and and us as a people. The group helped design the Carson City Stewart Indian School Cultural Center and Museum, which includes a permanent gallery for art created by artists in the collective. The museum reopened last year after the institution closed in 1980. It is one of hundreds of government-operated boarding schools that aim to assimilate young indigenous children as white citizens. The current museum aims to illuminate the troubling past of boarding schools with stories shared by living alumni. Malera Moose said she's grateful for the permanent gallery space in the museum for indigenous artists of the region. She believes it's important to bring to light the history of boarding schools like the Stewart Indian School in Carson City, after hundreds of remains were found throughout boarding schools run by the Catholic Church in Canada earlier this year. I guess it's kind of bittersweet because it's a story we've been trying to tell for so long. But at the same time, I'm really excited that it's finally out. And as far as what happened in Canada, 
it's my personal belief that they're going to find that and worse throughout the country. I mean, there was a boarding school, many boarding schools in almost every state, hundreds of boarding schools, and it was all government run. I don't know. It's, it's very emotional for a lot of us, and I'm just a descendant. I do have family that dates all the way back to almost the opening of the school in the early 1900s, but it's what they call intergenerational trauma. The art in the gallery space at the Stewart School serves as a reminder of the historical resilience and survival of Indigenous people, culture, and art. You know, Indian people, even though so much population was wiped out, we never stopped creating. If you want to look at our history, and specifically our art history, it always continued. We made it past our apocalypse. But, I mean, we weren't completely wiped out. So, yeah, it, it represents that, again, as just as that population. It's just, we were always here. We're still here. <laughs> as far as, like, the bigger picture, I mean, I'm just constantly trying to move all of the things that I'm working on forward bits at a time. I think the ultimate goals, I feel like everything we've done has far exceeded my wildest imaginations, but I think the ultimate goal is having some big museum shows that have big publications. I think the more publication or high-profile shows that we can get out there will really sort of bring our underrepresented region into the spotlight. Indigenous artwork is still sort of on the cusp, and BIPOC artwork is still climbing, trying to be collected by major museums and having major shows. That would be really exciting to see, for us to be just partially represented. If you'd like to read more of Jasmine's reporting on Native issues, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. This story was written and produced by Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, with editing and production help from myself, Joey Lovato, and Michelle Rendells. Right, and before we get to the next segment here, I just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, you know, during the pandemic, many of us have probably experienced the joys of an unstable internet connection during a Zoom call. Well, unfortunately, we faced a little bit of that this week. So no, your speakers aren't breaking. We're just getting a little bit of internet fuzz that comes in from time to time in this next segment. All right, and so normally we have some produced segments where we're talking about the news or whatever's going on that week, either with our reporters or experts in the field. This week we're trying something a little bit different. We've we've brought on two experts to kind of talk about vaccine mandates. Elizabeth Thompson, our managing editor, is going to kind of moderate this discussion, which has some differing views, but we'll, we'll kind of see where it leads. Elizabeth, I'll give it to you now. Thanks, Joey. Appreciate it. Hi, everyone. Glad you're here with Jason Winasso, who is an attorney and managing partner for the law firm of Hutchison and Stephan in Northern Nevada, and Rex Briggs, who is a author and award-winning marketing master and data guru. And I'm really happy to have both of them here for this, what I hope will be an interesting and engaging conversation about vaccine and mask mandates. So gentlemen, here's what I want to get to. There's so much controversy right now about mandates, whether it's vaccine mandates or mask mandates, whether they're coming from the government, whether that's state or county, whether they're being instituted at businesses, 
whether they're event specific or venue driven, are they legal? Are they constitutional? And are they ethical? Jason, as an attorney who has to advise businesses about the legalities, when a business says to you, do I have the legal right to mandate that my employees be vaccinated in order to show up to work? What do you tell them? Well, thank you uh, for having me today. And in response to the question, the simple answer is just yes, legally. The EOC has opined that employers, in fact, do have the right to mandate vaccines. However, they still have to comply with ADA Title VII and other workplace laws. So for example, if a person has a religious objection to getting the vaccine, there needs to be an exemption for them. Or if a person has a disability that makes the vaccine dangerous for them or allergic reaction to the vaccine, exceptions have to be made. And is that the same thing for the government? Is the, in, in your view, does a state, county, city government have a legal right as well to mandate a vaccine. Last year, I spent the year suing uh, the governor over shutting down churches and whether that was constitutional. Similar issue here with with a little bit of a nuance going back about 100 years during the Spanish flu, where this question was put directly before the court, could, could a local municipality mandate everybody get vaccinated? And when you have a public health crisis and people's health and safety are at issue, that the deprivation of individual right is outweighed by kind of the the public health concerns that the government's trying to address. That's been precedent for a hundred years, and it looks like it's going to be precedent for quite a while into the future because just last week, the Supreme Court declined to take up a challenge to the University of Indiana's uh, law mandating vaccines, declining to uh, challenge that in its entirety. So Rex, now I'm going to turn to you. What, what is the what is the information and the data uh, tell you about the effectiveness of such mandates? Yeah, first I'm, I'm going to say that there is nothing more American than uh, than vaccination. We are in the last phase of the pandemic before we get to herd immunity. We're somewhere around you take vaccinations plus natural recovery. We're somewhere around 75 percent of the U.S. Uh, has some protection. And unfortunately, we're going to barrel towards getting to herd immunity, mostly by unvaccinated people getting infected. And that is a sad state, but we are too late for the mandates now, because if you think about passing a mandate, what you're going to give people a month to be able to comply with the mandate and get their first jab. And then it takes six weeks from that jab. So we already are in a position where for the next couple of months, we're going to see about 30,000 people a month in the United States die. We're going to see about 100,000 people die before the mandate would actually fully make a difference. So I think we need to be thinking about other ways of addressing the issue. So you're saying we've kind of missed the window on broad mandate. So uh, I'm going to come back to you in a second, Jason. But Rex, what? so then what's the answer? What should we be doing that would be most effective? First of all, I do think it's valuable for businesses to signal their commitment to their employees and their customers and safety. I, I, I have personally, I think that that's, that's going to be beneficial, but it is more signaling than it will actually do anything in terms of saving lives in the next 90 days. And this is where folks might not like me if if they're anti-vaccine. I think the challenge is saying anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-testing, that's stupid. That makes no sense whatsoever because it does nothing to cut down on the lives lost and the livelihoods lost. So I am in favor of a stronger push around testing because if we can catch someone who is infected earlier, we can help them not infect other people. We can help them get 
treatments if they need it that can actually save their lives. That's actually more important right now today for us to be debating how do we get more testing out there. I'm supportive of mask mandates because that can also make a difference. Those are the things that will make a difference in the window. Debating around vaccinations, I'm sorry, we, we missed the window. Jason, how do you see that? Um, with regard to whether it's too late or not to have mask mandates or vaccine mandates, we have this expectation that we can solve problems in days, weeks, and months. And really, we're not going to really solve the riddle of the virus for several years. I mean, if history is any guide, I mean, look at the Spanish flu, took several years, several cycles to work through that. If we look at smallpox, took about 13 years from the time public officials started administering vaccines in mass to till the disease was completely eradicated from the earth, 13 years. And so I think public, public health officials and government leaders should have a little bit more humility in terms of what they can do and how long it's going to take. And then communicate that to folks. Hey, that's going to take some time and we're willing to put in the time and effort and sustain engagement to provide you with accurate information and to make sure you have the vaccine available to you. And until that time, we're going to, we're probably going to need to wear masks in public and we're probably going to need to take precautions to mitigate against the spread of the disease. That really needs to be the messaging. Patience, humility, understanding that we're not going to solve this in a year. It's likely going to be a 10, 15 year process. I don't think the answer is or should be going having the governor or the highest official in the state or the federal government say wag their finger and say you must do this. Even though you can do that, it's probably not the most effective tool. If if I were governor for the day, going back to the beginning of the pandemic, I would recognize I don't have the ability with myself or my administration to solve the problem of the spreading disease on my own. So I would I would develop a large coalition around people who are influencers, union leaders, clergy, community uh, leaders, including educators. That's how you win hearts and minds is by having people that you know and trust tell you, hey, this is probably a good and safe thing for you to do. And here's the science to back it up. But I think when you have mandates or you take a heavy-handed approach to a problem, and, be, and, and assert authority and say, you must do this. There's an automatic, we don't trust you. You've burned us in the past. I think the message has to come from people that the community know and trust. Rex, final question for you. You're advocating for testing and mass over mandating vaccines, but would you go so far as to mandate masks and testing in certain situations? Absolutely. I, I would, uh, mainly because I feel that the masks and testing are the least invasive, right? I mean, a swab in your nose is not a big deal. Uh, a piece of cloth over your face is not a big deal. Putting something into your body that people don't trust, that's different. And I'm fully vaccinated. Yeah, I'm totally supportive of that. But I, I do think that to respect the fact of where we're at right now, Masks and testing is the least invasive, fast, and ultimately the biggest mistrust that conservatives have right now is that they don't believe the numbers of deaths that are being reported about COVID are accurate. They think people are dying with COVID instead of from COVID. And so I would I, I encouraged a few people we were debating with on Nextdoor that, hey, don't take my word for it. Don't take the CDC or The Economist and their independent review of excess mortality or The New York Times. Call your local funeral home and just ask them the question, 
are you seeing more volume this year than you saw in 2018 or 2019? Because what you'll recognize is that when people understand that this is real and significant, that is the number one factor, 20 times more important in our models than politics to get people to get vaccinated is knowing that who's being hospitalized, the average age is 45.5 for an unvaccinated person in the hospital with COVID. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Stephen Goff, Howard Stutz, Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, Melissa Malero-Moose, Jason Guanasso, Rex Briggs, and Elizabeth Thompson for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter, soundcheck, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, Christopher Walken quotes, wireless beer stein designs, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at theenvyindie.com or jacob at theenvyindie.com. Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Storyblocks and some original music from myself. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Next week.